At this time, uh, children ages four through seven, I think, are invited to join the children's worship service. Um, There'll be people in the back that will help them find their way. Let me um, introduce myself. My name is Solgi Bune, if you don't know who I am. Uh, I'm not on the pastoral team here, as it were, but uh, I'm on staff. I've got a funny title called Scholar in Residence, which just means I oversee the adult education efforts here. Um, If you are new here, or you've been away for a while, uh, we are in the middle of a series called uh, Of First Importance, The Resurrection. And we are looking at the resurrection and uh, thinking about how it is central to the Christian faith. We're asking the question of how this resurrection reality should impact our day-to-day lives. We affirm that it is a, a real historical event in Jesus Christ that he died a real death and rose again. And we also affirm that in the future... We will be raised with him. But it is also true that the resurrection reality has implications for us now. So the theme for this morning, we're going to look at appropriately in the light of what Dean and Kyria, uh, it's wonderful to have them here and to hear their uh, story. Um, We're going to think about uh, how the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts our understanding of missions. So, let's read the text for today. It's uh, in your bulletin, page 7. It's Matthew chapter 28. Um, And uh, I'll read the passage after which I'll remind us that this is God's word. And you can reply, respond by saying thanks be to God. So let's read Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was like snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled. They became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. They set, and Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This 
is the word of the Lord. Matthew 28 recounts two of the most important events for Christians today. On the one hand, you've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Amen? And then you've also got, probably, Jesus' most famous saying. What we know as the Great Commission. It's sort of the last words that he speaks to his disciples to give them instructions to, as to now, this is what you are to do. This is what your life is to be about. They're the two most important iconic texts for Christians, you could argue. Uh, so much ink has been spilt on this stuff and there's so much to think about. This is the concluding chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And some of you might be wondering how on earth this guy up here is going to preach on two of the most important passages in the time we have. I know Pastor Matt over there is squirming in his seat because uh, he knows that I have the title of preaching the longest sermon ever in the history of this church. (laughs) But Matt, I promise you I will do my best. I'll try to end the sermon in time for the evening service for you to preach. (laughs) But in all seriousness... um, We at City Reform, the normal practice here is to take a text, to look at it carefully, to work on it verse by verse. Uh, That's generally what we're going to do, but uh, what we do, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to sort of um, do something a little bit different. I'm not going to outline the many, many reasons why the resurrection actually happened. I wish I could. I'm not going to talk about the Great Commission and parse out the verbs and show you how it's beautifully constructed to make it crystal clear what the disciples are to do. What I want to do this morning is to take a macroscopic view. I want to take a bird's eye view of this chapter, Matthew chapter 28. And I want to ask one simple question, and the question is this. What is the relationship between the resurrection account and the Great Commission. Or to put it even more directly, Jesus has been raised from the dead, so what? What implications does that have for us as we live our lives day to day? And I'm going to give you the answer now, at the very beginning, okay? Because I think the answer is so obvious. The resurrection is the basis for missions. The resurrection is the basis for missions. um, It should propel us to be missional. It is what, the resurrection is what should orient, reorient, I should say, our hearts, our minds, our feet, so that we will go out and do the work of God. There is a really important connection there. That's the answer. I could end the sermon right now, and it would be the shortest sermon in church history. But what I want to do is I want to show you in more detail that link to make it crystal clear that Matthew has an agenda. He wants to show you that the purpose, the the purpose of the life of Jesus Christ is to send you out. In fact, the purpose of the whole Bible is to send you out. So, first, I want us to think about a few reasons why or how 
Matthew makes his case, okay? Reason number one. If you just glance at page seven and you read through this, in fact, if you read the whole, the entirety of chapter 28, the logical flow of this chapter, when you read both accounts, is, is, it makes the case, right? It's really, really obvious. The resurrection leads to the commissioning. It is so obvious that many of us miss it. I have. For many years, I I never connected the two. I heard a lot of sermons right around this time, every year, right, on the resurrection. We focus on that little, what we call pericope, small section of text. It focuses on the resurrection. We have hope. And that's a great thing to affirm. And then there are numerous talks and sermons I've heard on evangelism and uh, missions conferences where the, the Great Commission is broken down and people are sent off. Very seldom are the two juxtaposed together. And I think when you read one account without the other in view, you do both a disservice. It lacks the power of what Matthew is trying to convey. And I want to quickly run through Matthew's logic in, in, this, in uh, the text that uh, is printed before you in chapter 28. So just kind of look at that. Scan through those verses. If you start with verse 1, Jesus has been raised. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then in verse 3, people encounter this risen Jesus. He's got a new body. It's different. It's real, but it's different. It freaks people out. It scares them, right? The soldiers, the chief priests, they are frightened to the point that the soldiers, they were almost, they looked like they were dead. That's the description. The other response is one of worship. The woman, in verse 7, I believe, or 9, and then the disciples later on, When they see the risen Lord, what do they do? They worship him. They fall down at his feet. They hold his feet. It's a sign of fealty, of recognizing that this is the king. Why do they worship him? Well, the answer is, it's Jesus' resurrection proves that he is divine. Jesus is God. And therefore, he he is worthy to be worshipped. You see the connection there. And it is because of the resurrection that God's plan to redeem a people from himself, from every tribe and every tongue, that's what Matthew has been obsessed about throughout the entire gospel this far. You've got to understand the context of this book. That plan is still on. And that is why the resurrection account leads to Jesus' commissioning. And Jesus' great commission to the disciples to go and finish the work. You see? Do you see how the resurrection, even just in the logical flow, is the basis for missions? There are a couple other reasons why Matthew wants us to see mission as the biblical response to Resurrection. Take a look at verse 6. The angel said to the woman, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Those three words might have escaped you. 
What is the angel referring to when he says, as he said? Well, if you study the Gospels, you will know that Jesus said on numerous occasions that he would have to die, but that he would be raised again. And this is supremely important to the angels. It's important to Matthew. Jesus told the disciples of this fact. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are a part of God's larger redemptive plan. And that is what Matthew is trying to get across. Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile as was prophesied in the Old Testament. There's a continuity there. And Jesus taught the disciples this. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he was walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? Do you remember that? And they were told, oh, Jesus died. It was so depressing. And Jesus says, you fools. Do you not remember everything I taught you? And then he recounts again how he is the fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament was talking about. The book of Matthew is even arranged to show this. Jesus is the fulfillment of this plan that has its moorings way back to the inception of time. How does it do this? Matthew starts out with a genealogy. Okay? Probably a text that you skip all the time, right? Nobody reads genealogies. But that is so crucial. Luke in chapter 3, mentions a genealogy. Why? Because both gospel writers are trying to show you that this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a fulfillment of everything that has happened in the past. And he is the one that will make right everything that is to come. And that is exactly how the entire New Testament begins, the gospel of, of, of Matthew. Chapter 1 Verse 1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. And so when the angel says, Jesus was raised from the dead as he said, as he foretold, as it was foretold by Jesus himself while he was still alive, it's not a new development. Right? This should not have come as a surprise. It's not an unexpected fate that resulted in an unanticipated deliverance. It's, I thought of, you know, it's not like um, the movie, not the TV series 24, where, you know, you got a time bomb ticking and someone, you know, it's not like Jesus came in and in the last minute, in the nick of time, like, rescued us. Jesus' resurrection is part of God's sovereign and good plan from the beginning, wrought out of love to redeem a people for himself because he wants relationship with them, just as he said. There's a third reason why Matthew, I think, very clearly intends for us to see the resurrection commission connection and take a look at verse 7 in that next verse Jesus says go quickly and tell my brothers 
that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Why Galilee? It's mentioned there again in verse 16. It's mentioned there actually quite a bit all through the Gospels. Did you know that the only two people that the risen Lord revealed himself to in Jerusalem were the two women? You'd think that Jesus would want to announce his power by revealing himself, revealing his resurrected body in the nation's capital where the temple stands and there are palaces and the Romans are there to show his enemies that he has conquered death, right? But Jerusalem is curiously irrelevant. There's something about the location of Galilee that is really significant for Matthew. It's not because the disciples are from Galilee, although that is true. Galilee has a really important prophetic significance. It's recorded even in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. If you've got a Bible or a phone, you can scroll there. Um, In Matthew 4, 15, we're told that Jesus went north to Galilee to fulfill what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Let me read to you what that says. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, northern states. The way of the sea, a northern route. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to describe what Galilee of the Gentiles is all about. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a light, a great light. For those who are dwelling in the region and shadow of death. That is how Galilee is described. The region and the shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. And Matthew says, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Galilee, think of it this way is the first zone beyond Judea, right? You guys know the expansion of the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? It's the first zone beyond Judea. It's sort of symbolic of the gospel expanding beyond the boundaries of Judaism. And that is why I think Jesus' ministry, almost all of his ministry, where was it located? In Galilee. Where did he appear post-resurrection? In Galilee. It's not, it's not an exaggeration to say the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry was to sow the seeds of the kingdom of God expanding outward, right? And therein lies that significance of connecting those two ideas, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the commission to tell the disciples to go from Galilee and beyond. I just love that. Jerusalem, the place of power. Jesus didn't even give a thought. Jesus was brazenly focused on a much larger purpose. It's the same purpose that he and the Father had before creation, before we were even made, and that is to deliver people from all nations from their sins to a saving knowledge of him so that one day 
as we see in the book of Revelation, and we read it as part of the confession, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. Why were you slain? Why did your blood spill? Because you ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. There's one more verse that I want to look at to prove this. Actually, one word, and that's in verse 18. It's the verse that comes right before the so-called Great Commission. This is what Jesus says to the disciples, the basis for why he's able to commission them. He says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, um, I want you to think about this because this is mind-blowing to me. What Matthew is saying here is that the resurrection is the reason that Jesus has been given total and complete authority over all peoples and everything else. The resurrection is the reason why he is our king. And think about the word authority. We have such a shallow understanding of authority, right? Apparently the whatever Gen Z or Gen Y, authority is the thing you detest most. Authority basically means, I think, in the way that we understand it, usually refers to a relationship between two people, two parties, where one has something over the other, power perhaps, right? So uh, I like to think that I have authority over my children. Um, They might protest, but uh, to start with, I am physically stronger, at least for the next couple years. Um, Although my eldest son doesn't know that I have other powers in my back pocket, like the power to ground him and the power of money and to send him off to boarding school. (laughs) Parents have authority, right? We have authority, okay? A police officer, a judge, the president, they have authority. The state has authority. If you break the law, they can incarcerate you, right? If you commit a really heinous crime, they might even take your life. The greatest form of authority that we know in this life, right? Then there are dictators who usurp authority. We don't have to just think about Sudan. People there today, they are acutely aware of the power of authority and how it can be distorted. But Jesus... You combine all of that authority together. Jesus' authority is infinitely greater, isn't it? He has authority over heaven and over earth. But I want you to think a little bit deeper. Look at the text. Why does human authority pale in comparison to the authority of Jesus Christ? What's the connection to authority and the resurrection? The answer is that Jesus Christ has been given the ultimate authority because he has conquered death. To have power over death, and in fact to be able to give life, which is what Jesus demonstrates in his ministry, right? To be able to give life, to have power over death, that is the ultimate authority. Just think about it. How have human beings fared with death? Through humanity, right? What's the score? Human beings, zero. 
I mean, maybe two. A guy called Elijah, Enoch, and then of course Jesus. But billions and billions and billions of people, or billions and billions of points, death. Death wins. And so Matthew 28, I think Matthew is trying to tell us that it is because Jesus has conquered death, he's conquered the grave, that is why he is given the authority over all peoples because only somebody who has conquered death can save people and can give life. And then that is the reason why the logical connection to the Great Commission, Jesus says, because I have that authority, I am telling you to go and tell people that I can save them. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to very quickly uh, look uh, elsewhere just to show you that this is not just a Matthean thing. This is a biblical thing, okay? Romans chapter 1, it's not in your outline. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not very organized with uh, the uh, outline thing. Um, but if you don't have it, just listen to the first four verses of the, the epistle to the Romans. This is what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. This is a bit I want you to focus on. Who was descended from David. You hear that? Descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the son of God in power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Okay? Jesus, a human being, a descendant of David, was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. In other words, Jesus' resurrection proves that not only is he the Son of God, but he has the power to save, which is which is the reason why Paul goes on to say just a few verses later, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? What is the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In other words, to all peoples, okay? The resurrection of Jesus is what demonstrates his power and ability to save. Listen to what um, uh, Doug Moo He's a New Testament scholar who's uh, quite well known. This is what he has to say on this verse. Pre-existing as the Son of God, Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, gained new power and glory, power now exercised for the salvation for everyone who believes. I think the point is this, guys. The reality of the resurrection The difference that the resurrection makes is that Jesus receives a new power that enables him to save sinners. Every time the New Testament speaks about the power of the gospel, he's talking about resurrection reality. Before the resurrection, Jesus did not have that power yet. And the salvation is for all peoples. Please don't miss that. Jew, Gentile, I know those are odd terms. It means all peoples. This salvation is for all peoples. All peoples need to hear about this Jesus, this reality, that there is a Savior, a power that has conquered death. And that is why Paul commits himself to be a minister of the gospel. Because that's the only thing that can save. 
Let me make one more observation. Um, Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In fact, it's fresh in my mind because I just talked on this chapter in a class that I taught. Um, And I'm not going to read all of it. Suffice to say, if you don't know much about this passage, this is one of Paul's greatest and most famous sermons. Preached on a big black rock outside Athens. Um, It's called the Areopagus. And it's an amazing uh, uh, speech in front of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. He's trying to expose the false gods of the Athenians, okay? But I want you to start, um, I'll just read this in verse, uh, let's see, 30. And listen to what Paul says here to the Athenians. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because in the light of the resurrection, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all, okay? How? By raising him from the dead. There you go again. You see how Paul connects here the resurrection of Jesus Christ with Christ's authority over all people. Now, he says, you need to repent. You need to repent because, yes, he made you, but he cannot ignore your false idolatry. He cannot ignore your sin. And God has made it clear that a day of judgment is coming. How do you know that? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. In other words, there is something greater than death itself that is going to stand in judgment over all creation. It's not a thing we like to hear, right? We're going to meet this person one day, whether we like it or not, because he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And we talked about in our adult Sunday school that Jesus in the light of his resurrection, has also been appointed judge. He has been appointed the judge. It's interesting, isn't it, that Easter is a time that's very much, um, uh, especially in the world out there, it's associated with hope, new life, spring, bunny rabbits, Easter eggs. So I was preparing this um, sermon. I was at a coffee shop um, yesterday and I saw the most gorgeous family. They had, I think, four kids and Um, Every single one of them had matching t-shirts with a bunny on it. And uh, a couple of the kids even had bunny ears and they were running around. I mean, it it was really cute. I have no idea if they're Christians. I have no idea if they know the gospel. But the notion that Jesus has been appointed as their judge was nowhere to be seen, right? But that is one of the realities. This is one of the realities of the resurrection. He will judge Everyone, we will have to stand before him. Friends, there is no more simultaneously frightening, urgent, and yet powerful and glorious message that we can proclaim than the reality of a resurrected Jesus. Because Jesus is either going to be the judge who will mete out the right judgment or he is going to be the Savior who is going to raise us up with him. I want to circle back to what I said at the beginning. 
which is that the resurrection is the basis for missions. It should propel us. It should want to make us um, go out. It, it, it needs to start here in Pittsburgh, in our backyards, right? Where there are tens of thousands of people who do not know the resurrected Lord. But it also needs to expand beyond. If you read the Bible long enough, you will see it. It is so crystal clear that the purpose, the aim of God and His redemptive plan is to rescue a people from all nations. And I just pray that there are people in this room that might hear the call to go out, especially to other nations, as Dean and Kyria have obediently stepped forward, especially you young people. I was up until recently uh, uh, serving as a board member of a, a large mission agency. You know what the most frightening thing is? The average time a missionary spends on the mission field is between three and five years. When I was growing up as a missionary kid in Japan, people committed their life to serve God for decades. That was their calling. That was their life vocation. That is a thing of, of, past, of the past. If there are people, you college students, high school students, and even people who are retired, this is a message for every one of us that we engage with the global mission the expansion of the kingdom of God. Even if it means we do it here. Even if it means we are rooted in Pittsburgh, we are members here, let's be a church that will, like Jesus, fix our eyes on God's redemptive plan. Because otherwise, we're not on board with his plan. Let me just end with two quick points of encouragement. For those of you who, you know, every time you hear the Great Commission, share the gospel, be a missionary, you're probably, you know, uncomfortable, right? If you're anything like me. There are two things that I just find so encouraging. The first is in verse 10. Jesus says to the woman, he instructs the woman, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Okay? Now, I love that Jesus calls the disciples brothers. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls them brothers, by the way. Post-resurrection. Now think about that. The disciples who just recently, only a few days ago, were feckless in the face of persecution, right? They, they abandoned Jesus when he needed them most. And the words that Jesus taught them over the course of three years to teach them, all of these things are happening so that I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised, and God is going to fulfill his plan to gather people for himself. Didn't even, like, just, they were so self-absorbed that that just, just kind of flew by. Went in one ear, out the other. Miserable, wondering, hiding in fear, what's going to happen to us? Completely forgot that. And yet Jesus calls these disciples brothers. He uses a term that almost treats them as equals, accepting them, loving them, and saying to them, this commission is for you. I want you to remain laborers with us in this work of bringing God's plan to fruition. 
Look, the point is Jesus does not need super godly people. He doesn't need strong people who've got their act together to proclaim the gospel. Why? Because Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the power. And Jesus says, go. And then the second thing, of course, that you need to notice, you cannot ignore, are the very last words of this great gospel. Right? He begins, and the gospel begins, by the way, in chapter 1, it begins with the naming of Jesus as Emmanuel. God is with us. And look how it ends. Behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. That is a promise for the disciples of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Jesus was raised from the dead? What should it mean to you? It means that Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us because he has all authority on heaven and on earth. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of history now. I'm running things. I'm seated at the right hand of God. I am judging. I am sovereignly in control over everything. So trust me. Trust me with your evangelism when you talk to your coworker. Trust me with your calling to be a missionary. Trust me with your life. Amen? Let's pray.